Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome along to this week's Writer's Routine. We're chatting to Eleanor Shearer. Her new novel is River Sing Me Home. It tells the story of a mother desperately trying to find her children. We talk about why her ancestors look over her writing. Also, why plotting is a very emotional thing for Eleanor. And you can hear why she likes to start at the end. What enables me to say, right, this is a novel and I can write it, is the ending. Uh, usually the ending image, sometimes right down to the literal last line that, that might not change that much between how it comes in, into my head and what it ends up being on the page. But it's only when I've got an ending in mind that I think, and it feels really satisfying, that uh, the idea of how this book is going to end. That's when I get started. And I know friends who, because they've got that ending image in mind, they'd think, oh, I'll just write it then because it's in my head and I know what, what it's going to be. If I did that, I don't think I would ever finish my draft. I... Um, when the going gets tough and you're in that middle third and you think it's the worst thing that anyone's ever written, the only thing that keeps me going is thinking I just really need to earn emotionally that ending. I want to get to that ending. Um, so that's why I can't write out of order. I just have to feel like I'm, I'm making my way, sometimes crawling my way towards that ending that I want to reach so much. There is more on the way, storytelling and lots more this week in a brand new writer's routine. Yes, welcome along. It's Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Uh, This is the show, if you're new to the podcast, it does what it says on the tin. We take a look through an author's working day to see how they get stuff done. To see how they take an idea, how they plan their workspace, their workday and everything else that fills up the hours to give them the best chance of getting it down onto the page and fingers crossed getting it published. This week, we're with Eleanor Shearer. Her new novel is River Sing Me Home. It's all about Rachel, set free in 1834 in the Caribbean and her journey to find her children who were sold, taken and sold from her to many other plantations. It's her fantastic journey to find them again. We talk about heritage, about why it's so important to her. Also, why family trauma from hundreds of years ago still echoes through her mind today. You can hear about the exhibition that she went to, which gave her that very first kernel of an idea so many years ago. Uh, We talk also about the small tricks that she uses to keep her writing muscle ticking over. And she gives us a fantastic phrase I've never heard before, uh, all about why she likes to park downhill at the end of the day. As I said... Uh, There's a lot about storytelling, but there's so much more this week. It's a fantastic chat with the author of River Sing Me Home. Let's get into it with Eleanor Shearer, talking about what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. So I am in my house in Ramsgate, which is a coastal town in Kent. Uh, I can't see much out my window at the moment because it's dark, but usually I look out over my garden uh i've got a desk pushed right up against the window it's the smallest room with the lowest ceiling in the house because uh my partner is a lot taller than i am so i got the the small study uh and then right in front of my window i have the what i call the ancestors so a picture of uh my grandparents on my mum's side who came from the caribbean and then my grandparents on my dad's side as well how important is it for you um that that your ancestors are there at, at all times. 
Yeah, it is quite important. I think um, particularly my uh, Caribbean grandparents, so they were part of the Windrush generation. They came to the UK in 1957 and... um, my mixed race identity and my Caribbean heritage is very important to me and inspired my first novel. So it's lovely to be able to see them while I write. They um, All of my grandparents have passed away now. So it's really a sense of them looking out for me and looking over me whilst I'm, I'm working. Can I ask a question that I might word it terribly. So I, I really apologize for that now. Um, my, like my heritage and, and my, like my 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 grandparents' lives is is played no real impact in my my, my life. Um, I I don't really have photos of them all around me. Um, why why is where your grandparents are from, where your heritage is from? Why is that why is that so important to you? I think it's probably to do with the difference between what they experienced and what I experienced. And I'm not at all saying you know I've got my dad's parents there as well, but. I probably feel slightly less of a connection to them because there is a bit of an element of, you know, they both grew up in the UK. And although there's that history element of they would have had very different historical experiences to me, you know, I can go to the places where they were born, where they died quite easily. Whereas my grandparents on my mum's side, um, because they're from the Caribbean, I just am always struck by how different their lives would have been. And also how much they kind of gave up and sacrificed to come to this country, a place that was so unfamiliar, a place that didn't always treat them very well in order to for me to have the life that I've had. Um, so that's probably why it, it's, it's a mix of a kind of um, race and heritage thing, but also I think an immigrant thing of you're always very conscious of that generation that came over and made the sacrifice for you to be where you are in this country that's probably why I feel such a strong connection with them. When you were growing up, were, were, were those sacrifices made clear and made important to you by you, your mum, perhaps? Yes and no. I think that, um, so my grandmother passed away before I was born. My grandfather was around until I was about 16. And my mum would sometimes tell stories about what it was like for them when they first came to this country. So even when I was quite young, I knew about how um, they were spat at, at the, in the streets, for instance, or how difficult my grandfather found that sometimes he was a very clever man, not necessarily that you know formally educated from the Caribbean, but very, very smart and not being given the opportunities he really should have been in this country um, because of his race and his immigration status. So that was very much a part of my childhood. But I think the thing that didn't really strike me, even on my first trip to the Caribbean, actually, when I was about 11 and my granddad was still alive and he'd uh, retired out there when he was in his 70s, um, it was only the second trip that I made when I was more of an adult, when I was um, in my 20s. And I remember getting off the plane and just really struck by how different the island was to everything that I knew in London. And that was when it really emotionally hit home for me what it must have felt like to be someone from an island that's got about 180,000 people total. That, you know, the weather is always warm. Um, my, My grandmother had never seen fog before she came to this country. And they came to a city of millions of people just how disorienting that must have felt and also in a time when it wasn't as easy as it is now to communicate with your family back home yeah I think it wasn't until I visited the Caribbean as an adult and had that sort of almost culture shock of saying wow this place is very unfamiliar to me actually when I visit it how must it have felt in reverse how must it have felt for them coming to a place that was so unfamiliar and having to make their life here and being almost completely cut off from everything they'd left behind that was I think on an emotional level, beyond those stories of the racism, that was when I first realised what it really must have been like for them. And now you find yourself in Ramsgate. I really like Ramsgate. Yeah. Um, how, how, how long have you been there? Uh, so I've been here um, in this house for a year now, actually. Um, but my parents, so I grew up in East London, and then my parents moved down to Ramsgate about 10 years ago now. And um, so I've been coming down to visit them quite a lot. I really love the sea. I love being by the sea. And it was actually during the pandemic um, when I wrote my first book, in fact. So although I'm in a different place to where I wrote the first novel, I'm in a 
similar I'm in the same town because I wrote it a lot of it during lockdown when I went back to live with my parents as I think a lot of young people did and got out of London so um there was a few months where I was going for these walks by the sea, listening to my podcast, you know, you're one, one a day let, getting let out of the house during, during COVID. And um, I just really appreciated the place a lot more, I think, because of those few months I spent here with my parents. Um, so then when my partner and I were looking for, for somewhere to buy, we thought, um, why not, why not Ramsgate and be near my, my family? So we're in your writing room. You've got the ancestors on the wall. Is there anything around you that's a bit more practical that, uh, for your storytelling? Uh, I'm talking uh, post-it notes, uh, notes that you've made that you've stuck, maybe maybe a whiteboard, a pin board, anything that draws you into what you're meant to be working on that day. So I've got a, it's quite hard to describe. It's a sort of antique book holder. It's not quite a bookcase. It's um, got two flaps that open up and it holds about, 10 books and it sits on my bookcase and they can lean in between the two flaps on this piece of wood um, and I've got a collection of books there and a note, couple of notebooks that are kind of um, connected to what I'm working on. At the moment my desk is pretty bare but I am someone who loves usually not at the idea generation stage actually it's more my editing brain if I've got a manuscript that I'm editing I am a big kind of post-it or cue card person I like to be able to write things out move things around um but actually when I'm drafting I find I don't need that much outside of just my laptop and my word document well talk to me about that word document we get a little bit niche on the show quite nerdy um what what font are you going for uh usually times new roman uh double spaced think size 11 or 12 or something so quite 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 plain quite standard nothing too flashy um I'm also someone I'm fascinated by writers that don't draft in order it could never be me I when I start a first draft I have to begin at the beginning and I have to write until I get to the end and that's the only way that I can do it so my word document looks pretty clean as well because it is just I start at the beginning and I go through until I've got something approaching a a first draft I I guess perhaps that could come down to how strict a plotter you are. It might be easy for someone who has thoroughly plotted everything on a spreadsheet so they know exactly what's happening on chapter 14 so they can just just, just crack on. Is that not something that you do? I do it to an extent. I think for me it's actually more an emotional thing. Um, When I get an idea... What often comes to me first is the the premise of it. So what you might call the hook, the the one-liner. But then what comes pretty soon after that and what enables me to say, right, this is a novel and I can write it, is the ending. Uh, Usually the ending image, sometimes right down to the literal last line that that might not change that much between how it comes into my head and what it ends up being on the page. But it's only when I've got an ending in mind that I think, and it feels really satisfying that uh, the idea of how this book is going to end. That's when I'll get started. And I know friends who, because they've got that ending image in mind, they'd think, oh, I'll just write it then because it's in my head and I know what, what it's going to be. If I did that, I don't think I would ever finish my draft. I, um, When the going gets tough and you're in that middle third and you think it's the worst thing that anyone's ever written, the only thing that keeps me going is thinking I just really need to earn emotionally that ending. I want to get to that ending. Um, so that's why I can't write out of order. I just have to feel like I'm, I'm making my way, sometimes crawling my way towards that ending that I want to reach so much. I love routine, but not too much routine, if that makes sense. So when I'm drafting, I tend to write 500 words a day pretty strictly. My first book, I actually wrote 500 words a day at least every day without taking a single day off until I had a draft because I was almost terrified of losing any kind of momentum, even if I took a single day off. Um, Now I'm a little bit more forgiving with myself if I really need to take off a day off because I'm very sick or I'm very, very busy, but I really don't make a habit of it. So it's usually at least 500 words every day. But it's like that fills up all of my capacity for routine. So if I'm any more strict with myself, if I say, and it has to be at 6am before work, or it has to be at 5pm when I finish my working day, um, then I start to feel too constricted by it. So I do tend to try and do it in the morning. So I work four days a week at my day job. And then I have, um, I'm lucky to have one day a week, Friday, where I just write. Um, So on my working days, I do like to get it done in the morning if I can get up a bit early, stay around 6.30 and do those 500 words before I start work. Um, 
But if for, for whatever reason, I mean, in the winter, it's so miserable getting up when it's dark and cold. I'm a bit forgiving with myself in terms of some days I will not do it in the morning. I will push it to the evenings. Uh, what matters to me is that it gets done at some point. But I allow myself that little bit of flexibility to say exactly when in the day those 500 words will get written. So when you've done your 500 words of the day um, and that might be in the morning, it might be just whenever. I, well, I guess that's the question. Uh, if you don't like think, if you like a routine to almost grip onto that, you know, if worse comes to worse, I have this routine that I, I, I can always fall back on. Um, what might lead you to not do it in the morning? Are there days when you uh, wake up and you think, you know, I'm so bored with uh, cracking out 500 words before 8am, maybe I might give myself a little bit more time. And and how do Fridays differ as well when you've got the whole day at your leisure? Mm. Yeah, so it'll be a mix of uh, if I've, say, gone for dinner or on a working day, a working evening the day before, and I've stayed out until 11pm and I'm thinking to myself, I really can't face setting my alarm for 6am. I'm actually just going to do it in the evening tomorrow. There might be a little bit of that, just allowing life to get in the way slightly. Um, There's sometimes a little bit of kind of bargaining with yourself. So if I'm feeling creatively stuck What I like about 500 words is however miserable a day you're having, however writer's blocky a day you're having, you can write 500 words. It's not very many. Um, And sometimes I have to do deals with myself. I might get up and say, I'm really not feeling it today, but you know what? Just 100 words. And then I can find another, do do another 100 at uh, lunchtime, maybe another 100 early evening, another 100 or 200 before bed. And I quite like that as a trick because usually what happens is actually you don't write just 100, you write about 150 and then you think, oh, come on, that's just a couple more sentences until I get to 200. And then you think I'm almost halfway. And then before you know it, you've written 300 and then you really are almost at your 500 word mark. So yeah, doing little deals with myself where I might wake up and think, you know what, I've got no ideas. I'm staring at the blank page and time is ticking and I've got to get to work. Can I just do do a hundred words? But you find suddenly you'll pick up a, a rhythm and a flow, and then um, it's it's easier than you think. Well, let me just ask you one more thing about that five hundred word limit. I, I have to say it's um it is it is it it's fairly a, a small goal, which which you've said yourself. Like a lot of people, when they sit down with a word count, will kind of get to a that where they'll say right a thousand words, and I'm will get there. And then you think, right, a thousand words, that means over the course of three months, you can probably get down the first draft if you work at it quite relentlessly. What made you set yourself 500 words? Were were there any times before that when you were playing around with a bigger word goal or has it always been that tight for you? Um, It's a good question. I I think it always was just 500 words. And I think it is because when I started out, I just wanted something that I knew I could hit and um, wouldn't feel like this huge burden on my day, particularly because I was starting during the pandemic when, you know, we were all under quite a lot of emotional strain. And I think I didn't want to put too much pressure by, on myself by saying, you know, a thousand words. Um, I now do on my um, non-working day on Friday, I tend to view the 500 words as an absolute minimum and then try and do more but it's not so formal so usually I'm actually doing about a thousand or fifteen hundred on those days but um if other things get in the way you know the strange thing about that day is I find um actually drafting as in the act of getting words down on a page something I really don't mind doing around my day job even though my day job is in public policy I'm a researcher and so I do a lot of writing but of reports and things like that but it's feels like a completely different muscle in my brain to um writing fiction so I can very easily do that all day and then get out my home laptop and start writing fiction but what I can't do is some of the more boring admin things that are now starting to come along with them having my first novel almost out in the world so um, maybe it's answering some questions for a publicity interview or maybe it's um, getting my website and my newsletter up and running those kind of things tend to get pushed onto my non-working day and then the drafting I almost like it as something that goes on in in the background more than something that I spend huge amounts of time on day to day. I think the other thing I'll say about the 500 words is what I liked about it too is um, I'm a big fan of this concept I came across in an essay about fiction writing fiction once called um, Parking Downhill, which is the idea that rather than writing, say, to the end of a scene or the end of a chapter when you're feeling really inspired, make yourself stop just before so that you know when you open the document the next day 
what you're actually going to be working on. And so I think with 500 words, what happens usually is I do stop in the middle of the scene or the middle of a chapter. And even if I don't quite know where it's going, it sits there in my head and I'm thinking about it all before, all over the next day before I pick it back up again. And by the time I pick it up again, I know where I'm going next. Whereas I find when I write in longer chunks, even on my my non-working day, if I write 1,500, 2,000 words, it often comes to a, a stop point. And then I've actually got so much out there that it takes me a while the next day to figure out where I'm going to go with it next. So yeah, for me, I like the kind of small, steady, consistent, allowing it to grow slowly and um, have that room in between your 500 word chunks to really think about what's going to happen next, especially as I'm going chronologically. That's what just works best for me. I've heard of that idea. I've never heard it called parking downhill. And that is a that is a really cute, concise way to put it. Um, here's a question. Because you're writing in these chunks, and it would be the same if you were doing a thousand words, I've just never thought of the question. Do you find yourself, when, when you're revisiting it, that your story is flowing in almost these separate 500 word short stories that are all linked together? I mean, uh, obviously you're parking downhill, so it's not like so you know a thursday will lead off from where wednesday finished narratively but can you almost feel the ebb and the flow of the story as as your energy picks up and, and then wanes through that tight little writing session so i think what you can feel and it's, it's maybe not even day to day but more kind of week to week because if I have a down period it tends to be I'm really tired for a few days rather than just one but I I, I do think there is a a rhythm to it that you notice but what I find fascinating I I once spoke to a a writer friend of mine who also writes in a word count per day Um, you know I know some people that choose to do a a time count rather than a word count but she also does a word count and she said that um, she felt like the thing that you default to on the days where you really can't get the words out is the thing that you're best at or enjoy most about writing. So for her, it was dialogue. She would write a scene with no dialogue tags, no descriptions, knowing that in the editing process, she's going to have to come back and fill all that in. But it was what allowed her to get into a bit of a flow. And for me, what it was, was plot and story. So the days where I was not doing well, you go back and on the first draft and you see, okay, here's something that's incredibly sparse. It's getting characters from A to B because I knew what I wanted the story to do, but I didn't have the time and I didn't have the energy to fill in all the lyrical flowery descriptions. But what's funny is that in the moment when you're having one of those days and you think, oh, this is such a bad day. And then in the moment when you're having what you feel as a good day and the words are really flowing, you think your sentences are very beautiful, you often read it back and the the days you thought were great are overwritten and need to be cut back. Whereas the days that didn't feel great have a kind of functional beauty to them that I quite like in fiction. I think there should be some some sparse and ordinary sentences now and again. So um, actually, yeah, you do notice a rhythm to it and you need to sort of uh, adjust that rhythm accordingly in editing. But I quite like the fact that sometimes what I thought of as my bad days produced some stuff that probably ended up in a final draft, whereas my good days probably didn't produce sentences that ended up in the final draft. And I'm sure that you might be on top of the world writing brilliantly one day and the next day it feels like it's simply not going to come out. Have you, have you have you managed to get to the bottom of what makes a good or a bad day for you? That's a great question. Um Honestly, no, I think the main thing that makes me, that gets me into a flow is that real sense of what's going to happen next. Um, Where I am a bit stuck in terms of the story or exactly how I'm going to get a character from A to B, even if I know what I want to happen next, I know I need to write some kind of connecting thread. That's where I procrastinate, noodle around, checking Twitter every sentence. Um, But where I'm, building to it's a bit like my my approach to writing a whole novel but in miniature you know I've got an ending an ending image in mind for a scene or an, a, a climax image for a scene and I'm so excited by reaching that moment that I really in a in a flow state and in the zone getting the the sentences that get me to that destination so yeah I'm clearly most I'm clearly quite motivated on the macro and the micro sense by having something very strongly in my head that I just feel like I need to get to and earn on the page also, those 500 words, because it is quite a tight 
uh, quite a, t- a tight word count for the day. Um, <clears throat> do you spend much care and attention thinking about the quality of those words? Are you trying to make sure each one of those 500 is as perfect as it can be the first time around? Or are you perfectly, perfectly willing to just kind of get anything down and then tidy it all up? I'm perfectly willing to get anything down. I think, funnily enough, it might be a lucky byproduct of doing not that many words that they might end up cleaner than if I was trying to get 2,000 uh, words out every day. Um, but I find actually very freeing. And again, part of the reason I wanted to do this word count every day, don't look back, keep your momentum, keep going forward through the story. Don't be tempted to go back and edit and tinker. That sense of momentum is really important to get me through a first draft. And it's funny, I really find a freedom in the sense of um, these words might not be in the final final book and they don't need to be perfect. Even down to... um, and this, I think, is probably one of my my weirdest writing feelings. But sometimes I'm in the middle of a scene, particularly now when I'm working on a second manuscript and um, having gone through the process of the first one and editing it. And I know that the whole scenes will be cut out, for example. I can be in the middle of a scene and just suddenly think, this is definitely being cut out of the final draft. But I won't stop that scene and I won't suddenly, you know, decide to, to, to start the new one. I'll keep writing because it's so freeing <laughs> to know that this is... And I'm often right. It's not It's not like I suddenly read it back and realise it's better than I thought. Often I'm, I have a quite good instinct for, you know what, this is just completely extraneous. It's not moving the story along at all. But there's something so fun about writing those words with absolutely no pressure. And I do believe that no words are wasted words, even if it ends up being cut because it's extraneous to the plot. It taught you something about the characters or it allowed you to get a bit more deeply into the setting and try out different ways of describing things. So, um, yeah, I love the freedom that comes with knowing that you don't have to make these words as good as they can be and they might not be in the final product. Also, you mentioned that you, so you got the, the Friday off to, to focus on writing, I guess in as much detail as you'd like to give. that That's quite a, a handy luxury to have. Was that day off something that you have kind of recently acquired since writing is this something that you had you had kind of bargained for is it just a happy medium that you got this day off and you happen to need it for writing no it was um when I sold my first book and so had the financial means to do so I went to my then employer this was my last job actually and said look I know it's a bit of a wild card but I've just got this novel accepted for publication I'm not going to be quitting my day job but I would love a bit of time during the week to write and I was lucky that they were quite a flexible employer and I knew people uh, in the organization that did work part-time for various reasons so I was hopeful that they would say yes and they were very lovely about it and let me work go down to four days a week and then um, I moved jobs a few months ago but um, in the application process uh, I applied for you know a full-time position but then said at the interview stage like this is pretty non-negotiable for me that I need to work four days a week now because it it is a great setup for me Um, and they were again kind enough to to offer the same arrangement so it very much I I, I took the time out of my working week for the writing I'm just lucky to work in a field where um it's got that that flexibility to um sort of set set up your working time how you want it to be set up and on days when the words aren't coming out uh, what have you learned helps them for you or have greases the wheel of writer's block or whatever it might be uh it's a good question. I, I think I um, I probably have some of the same answers as, as, as lots of people would about, you know, getting away from your desk, going for a walk, doing a bit of exercise. But actually, I, um, I, I find it's very rare. And again, it's probably to do with having quite a tight word count. It's very rare that I'm so stuck that I really can't write 500 words. Like I say, sometimes I do these little deals with myself. So I might just mentally lower the bar and say, actually, in this session, when you're sitting at your desk right now, you only need to do 250 or you only need to do 100. Um, And then that often is enough to get me going again and actually get me to hit the target. Um, But yeah, I guess on a really bad day where I really do need to split it into chunks, that's probably the main thing that does help is just doing it at different times of the day. So 100 150 in the morning a couple of hundred at lunchtime and then the rest after work so that you're not um just sitting there staring at a screen and constantly flicking over to social media um you do actually just say you know what 
these words aren't coming in this session. Let's let's pick it up again later in the day. And that's part of why I do when I can like to start make a start in the morning because it's obviously a lot easier to then adapt the the schedule when you've got the rest of the day. Whereas if you leave it hanging over you all day and then you're suddenly trying to do it at 8 p.m., that's when you just really need to force yourself through it, I find, and just get the words out, even if they're they're bad words and you know that they're going to be cut. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We'll be back with Elena in just a sec. I'm thinking of starting something because... Uh, these pod- this podcast is listened to so many thousand people and, and thank you so much for downloading and clicking play. Uh, I think it might be useful to harvest some of that book knowledge just so we can pass it round, pass it all over the world, really. So it's not so much a book club because it won't be as organised as that. I just want to see what you think, really. We're, what, three weeks into 2023 now. What book have you started the year with? What have you started reading? Maybe something classic, maybe old school that you've just got round to finally finishing. Uh, Maybe it was a Christmas book, something like that, that you absolutely tore through in a couple of days. Uh, I'd love to know one book in the first few weeks of January that you would recommend above all others. Uh, I I would love to read it myself. And I know that so many other people out there would like to take your advice and would like to read it as well. I think it's a brilliant way to, to get out of our comfort zones. I know that you might be listening, you might be a huge fan of crime or um, more fantasy fiction, more romantic fiction, thrillers, horror, uh, uplit, whatever's going on, whatever your bag is, I think this would be a really great opportunity to widen our own to take your advice to take the books that you have read this year and just to help us read something new. So what is the one book that you have read so far this year that you would like to pass on, that you would like to recommend? I'd love to hear what it is. And then in the next few weeks, I can do that for you. I can pass that on. So do me a favour. It won't take two seconds. Just let me know what the best book you've read so far in 2023 has been. The easiest way to do that is by using the contact form at writersroutine.com or just fire off a quick email to me, writersroutine at gmail.com, writersroutine at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Talking about writing communities and passing things on, we've got a fantastic community going strong over on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Uh, it's the best way for you to support the show. You can get involved with some of the chats that we have every now and then over there. Uh, and for that, you get our unending thanks. There is merch, there is bonus content, there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. So it's another way that you can pass your work on to other people. And it helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can. 
if you've learned anything along the way, if you like what we do, if you'd like to send a little something towards us just to help it tick over, and I know things are tremendously tight at the moment, so anything small that you can send over, I promise, goes an extraordinarily long way. You can help out. You can make that happen by becoming a backer and supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it, chatting to Eleanor Shearer, then talking through her debut novel, River Sing Me Home. It's all about Rachel who, after being set free from working on a plantation, has to find her five children that were taken from her and sold elsewhere. We talk about why she likes structure, but also being surprised. It is a little complex. Also about post-memory, which is something brand new that people are discovering, how generational trauma can still affect descendants, those living and affected today. And we get back into it, chatting through the very first idea that she had for the story and why it came from an exhibition that she went to many, many years ago. Yeah, it was a a long time coming because about 10 years ago when I was 16, I went to an exhibition put on by an organisation called the Windrush Foundation. And the exhibition was called Making Freedom. And the idea was that in the UK in particular, the way we learn about the abolition of slavery doesn't give enough justice to the agency of um, African people in the Caribbean who were enslaved. We often learn that white people like William Wilberforce gave the slaves their freedom, but actually there was all this resistance and rebellion that really catalyzed emancipation. Um, And as part of that exhibition, they had this little panel where they said, after emancipation, lots of women downed their tools and went to try and find their children. And I just thought this was such a powerful image of resistance to slavery because What slavery was trying to do, one of the things it was trying to do is completely destroy your family life and your right to a family. So from renaming people um, so that they weren't allowed to use their ancestral names anymore through to taking children away at a moment's notice and selling them onto other plantations or even other islands and there's an ocean between you and that that child. Um, It's such a powerful thing for women to say we've suffered so much and we've had this family taken away from us through slavery but actually we refuse to accept that it's gone forever and we are going to go and try and find our children again so from that point really when I was 16 I thought you know this would be a great book I think um and it just took a while to sort of um I took a while to sit with it. In the interim, I actually did a a master's, which um, helped a lot doing research about the legacy of slavery in the Caribbean, because I'd always thought, oh, this idea, I I love it, but I I surely can't do it until I've got the free time to really sit down and do the historical research. And it was only after my master's, I suddenly thought, hang on, the research I've just done actually supports that idea. Um, So yeah, it came out of that exhibition. And then Quite fortuitously, I ended up over the next uh, few years doing academic work that helped me uh, bring it to fruition. So you've done the academic work. Um, what was the what was that moment though that you thought, oh, okay, I, I've done everything I need. I can I can start typing my first sentence. What was that moment that you remember? So uh, I applied for. I now can't remember exactly which sort of competition or award, but it was something where you needed the first, you know, a thousand words or something of a project. And up till that point, um, so I'd just left my master's, I'd started work, but I was thinking, you know what, I've always wanted to be a writer. I was quite ambivalent about what kind of writer. I thought maybe journalism, maybe fiction. And I'd been given some advice, which was to try and write every day, but in a very throwaway manner. So we're talking longhand in a notebook knowing that no one is ever going to read this and you experiment with different styles, whatever comes to you in the moment. And when you go back and read it, you can then say, you know, and I really did try everything, you know, I've got, it's 15 minutes a day or something I was doing and I've got, you know, some very poor pages of a fantasy novel or um, some nonfiction essays or whatever it was that came to me in that moment. And actually it was, in that process of throwaway writing that I wrote what would end up being the first sentence of River Sing Me Home. I just didn't know it yet because um, quite a few of the things that came to me were about the Caribbean or writing about the Caribbean. And I wrote uh, what is the first line of the novel, which is the soil on the island was fertile, but everything laid down shallow roots. And I wasn't thinking about necessarily that exact slavery novel. I was actually thinking about possibly writing something that was more around my grandparents' time. But 
the thing that had really stopped me from getting started with this book was in fact that I have a huge amount of respect for art that engages full on with the brutality of slavery, but I find it very difficult to consume. I think sometimes it's not for me or for people like me because we know, we know that people were brutally beaten. We know that they were raped. And I couldn't think of a way into this story about slavery because I was so worried about, or so it was too painful to do the kind of um, someone being beaten on a plantation kind of a, a beginning. So it was only when I had that first sentence that it ended up spinning into a more kind of um, subtle um, or just a different way into the story that I suddenly began to piece it all together and thought, actually, this could be the start of that idea that I've had for ages and ages. And then, as I say, I was applying for this award and that's what got me to kind of transfer the words from that little notebook that I thought no one would read onto my laptop turn it into the beginning of a story and um, I didn't get the award but I did get the beginnings of my novel and then started doing my 500 words a day and um, that's what got me to the end of it. And you you said earlier that you like to have the kind of the figment the very the closing image in your story before you sat down to write how much did you know about everything that would fill the first line that you've got because you've already written that, and the very last image that is kind of floating around your brain, how much do you like to know or did you know before you started writing? Yeah, I think I sit somewhere in the middle of um, needing to have some structure but also allowing myself some room to be surprised um, or kind of fill in the gaps. So I think when I started, what I knew is um, Rachel, my protagonist, is looking for her lost children. There are five that were um, survived childhood and sold away. So I knew that they, I knew the names of her five children. I knew what happened to each of them and in what order she was going to find that out and where they were in the Caribbean. So I guess I had this kind of three part and then five part structure. So I knew it was going to take place across these three locations in the Caribbean. I knew it was going to hinge around the fates of these five children. Um, But then Beyond that, I didn't know a huge amount. And um, one of the things I wanted to do in the novel or ended up doing in the novel is giving it a bit of an oral history feel in terms of there are quite a lot of these side characters that come in sometimes only for a chapter or a few chapters and then go away again. And um, that, I I hope, gives a bit more texture to the novel. And a lot of those were surprises in the sense of I think to myself, okay, I need something for her to be doing in this location, someone she's working for, someone she meets. And then around that, I could build a, a, a new character and a new sort of side to the story. But that central thrust of these are the children, this is what's happened to them, and these are the locations that she'll travel through, that was there right from the beginning. You're talking about Rachel there. This is a, a character that's what living almost 200 years ago from where we are now. Um, and she, she's on this this search to find her five children. Um, uh, how, how did you get to know her, a, a woman that lives half the world away two centuries before? Yes, it's um, it was a, a challenge, actually. And I think in um, successive drafts, drawing her out was one of my biggest editing challenges. Uh, Rachel has always been very deeply inspired by the black women in my own life. That was the the primary resource for me. So my mother, my aunt, my step-grandmother, um, who my grandfather married after my grandmother passed away. And I never met my grandmother, but I had stories of her growing up. And um, the, the primary thing that I wanted to explore with Rachel, the way that I always knew that she would be is... Um, all these women in my own life, they've, they've suffered in various ways so much and they've experienced a, a huge amount of racism. But they still have so much capacity for love and um, for kindness and um, they're kind of strong but soft. You know, I was very cognizant of the, the, the strong black female archetype and I didn't want to be playing into that directly. Um, but... It, it's funny the contrast I feel with someone like my mum who round our kitchen table when it's just our family is so outgoing, so funny, like dominates our family conversations. But in public, she's very quiet. She's very watchful. She's very reserved because that's the way she's had to adapt to survive. And that was something I wanted to bring out with Rachel and why I think it was such a challenge in drafts to bring her out and try to make her 
not too passive because she is someone who is a bit reserved and she's quite quiet in the novel and she does is always watching out for the way that someone is going to hurt her because she's been so traumatized but she goes on this journey that sort of helps break down some of those barriers and even the act of going to look for her children is such a huge deal for her because the way that she'd survived up to the point where she leaves the plantation is to kind of just let go of all hope and say well I'm never going to see them again and so by going to look for them and opening herself up to the possibility that she might find them, but what she finds might be devastating to hear, um, that is such a courageous act for her. Um, so yeah, that was the main way I got into her head was thinking about the women that I know that um, whose kind of character traits have always interested me, interested me and I wanted to explore through Rachel. It must be interesting for you because... Um... Uh, you, you must have been told so many stories about, or perhaps not you, but um, descendants of uh, survivors uh, of, of of those who who, who were slaves um, must have been told so many things about the way life was, what their trauma was like, that you almost put together your own uh reality of, of of how they were living which might be quite different but might be, be as vivid as if the kind of you or someone w- were really there have you found that absolutely that's exactly what my master's research was on actually so i was doing it in politics and i was looking at the legacy of slavery in the caribbean and the case for reparations and one of the things i was interested in is a lot of writing about reparations focuses on kind of economic effects of colonialism or slavery and i wanted to think about the the non-material harm so the the psychic damage that was done and a big part of that is what is called um by some theorists, post-memory. So it was an idea, um, it's a term coined by a um, Jewish American woman who describes going with her parents who fled what is now Ukraine in the Second World War and walking around their former town and feeling like she had been there even though she never had. And so exactly as you describe, there are elements of that in the Caribbean with um, people today, there are elements of that within my family. But what is... Um, crucial about post-memory is the mix of story and silence. So some things, and this is a theme, big theme in the novel as well, some things are too painful to relay. So when you're hearing those stories, you know things are being left out. You can kind of feel where the gaps are. So it's a strange mix of memory, but also your own imagination because you're having to fill in the gaps and the things left unsaid. And it does create this very vivid, very emotional sense within yourself of what what might have happened to people. So yeah, huge part of um, what I was working on in my master's, what I wanted to explore in the book, this idea of stories and kind of trauma being passed down through the generations. And you mentioned earlier, thinking about how floral the writing might need to be. Uh, because of, uh, I guess, of the genre that you're writing in, and and then when you read the first sentence of, of the of the novel, you do feel that straight away. How much were you thinking about the the genre that you were writing? I mean, some people call it fancy fiction, but I mean, there's there's many many more words that are more uh, that fit it a lot better. But you're you're writing in quite a prosaic way. How much were you thinking about that when you were writing and then revisiting it? Yeah. So. Um... I don't think I was thinking so much in terms of um, genre as much as sort of a mix of subject matter and writers who I really admire. So subject matter wise, as I say, I knew right from the start that I didn't want to vividly describe some of the worst horrors of slavery, or if I did, I wanted to do it very sparingly. So that then led to particular stylistic choices and um not you know where there is violence in the novel I didn't want it to be and I enjoy these novels myself you can get some really kind of harrowingly beautiful extended writings about violence but when it appears in my novel it tends to be quite um short and sparse uh and then relatedly thinking about um writers whose styles I really admired so in particular one of the things I was doing, this is less a stylistic at the sentence level, but more in the, the shape of the overall story. I'm a huge, huge fan of Andrea Levy, who wrote Small Island and 
the Long Song in particular, her most famous novels, I think. But um, Small Island, uh, which is about the Windrush generation and um, coming to the UK in the 1940s and 1950s, um, it is is not afraid of the the suffering and the racism that people experienced, but it is so warm and hopeful at its core. And that was something I knew I wanted to do with my novel as well. I wanted it to be unflinching in the way that it talked about slavery and not um, hiding from how traumatic it was. But I wanted to tell a story that was hopeful and was redemptive as well. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Eleanor Shearer for coming on the show. That brand new novel is River Sing Me Home. I think it's going to be huge this year. Uh, It's already got whisperings of being critically acclaimed. Uh, The way it talks through a a story around uh, the situation and generational trauma, it's just so fantastically done. So thank you so much to Eleanor for coming on the show. Now, next week's episode, All Being Well, should still be with you on the Friday, but just a little bit later on in the day. Uh, So bear that in mind. We're chatting to Sally Page, all about her huge success, The Keeper of Stories. That'll be here next week on the show. In the meantime, as I say, I'd I'd love to hear the book that you have read so far this year that has just made you sit back and you need to tell other people. I would love to hear it and I'd love to tell people for you. Let me know that one book writersroutine.gmail.com or use the contact page at writersroutine.com and you could always support us at patreon.com a lot of addresses patreon.com forward slash writersroutine uh, it's a really good way to support the show anything that you can give goes a very long way I really do appreciate whatever you can sling to us and I will see you next week with Sally Page on the show till then I can't wait to hear for you uh, thank you and bye <laughs> What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 